Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. PodCASP is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith City, Hallie Respondic, Nitesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Hey, podcasters, Hallie here. On this episode of the podcast, we were joined by Joanne and Lanny, who were founding board members of CAST and later CAST. We thought ahead of the upcoming CASP conference in Tampa, Florida. Everyone would really enjoy hearing about the start of CASP and, you know, why it was needed in the first place, the goals that they have for the field as a whole, and, you know, their perspective looking back on the beginning of CASP and, you know, all of the developments that have happened since. We do hope to do a part two with other founding board members because there are plenty others to hear from, and we really enjoyed this. So thank you to Joanne and Lanny. It was really enjoyable, and we look forward to, again, a part two. So please enjoy this episode of the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Utah Behavior Services. Established in 2010, Utah Behavior Services proudly serves individuals and families with high-quality, evidence-based behavioral health care services. With 400 employees, nine locations, and services ranging from autism and mental health to primary care, they are honored to be Utah's only integrated, multidisciplinary team of professionals all under one roof. Utah Behavior Services feels like I do, that the future of autism services is integrated care, and they're showing up every day for families doing just that. Oh, and one more thing, Utah Behavior Services Academy is a special program that allows students to add an academic package of services to their current behavioral health treatment program. Just another reason UTBS is leading the charge for kiddos and their families. For more information, check them out at www.utahbehaviorservices.com. Hi, everyone. Today, we have two of the founding members of CASP here with us and one OG from when CASP was actually CASCAS, Joanne and Lainey. Um, they're going to tell us all about how this wonderful idea started and, um, and talk about the community that um, CASP has created for providers and how we all benefit from it today. So, Joanne, can you please tell me how you came up with this awesome idea? Well, for, for many, many years, since, since before some of you were born, um, we would go to ABAI, right? Um, that was the big conference for us. Um, but the further away you got from actually working with kids or adults, the less relevant a lot of the things that were being, that was, ha- that was happening. And I found myself spending more of my time sitting in a bar, uh, picking the brain of somebody or, you know, solving problems than I did in any of the sessions. Um, and then ABA, I got very political um, and it started to not even be fun for a while. There was a lot of stuff going on. And Ray Romanchik, who is up at SUNY Binghamton and I would talk every year in the bar about our schools. We both ran schools at that point. And um, we were joking that we really needed, an, uh, we'd both had some very difficult issues uh, the, before this one conference. And we were joking that we needed an executive director's retreat. And so we joked about it for about two years. And then finally one year, and I can't remember uh, what was the real trigger, but I saw him at another conference and he said, that's it. We're doing it. We're going to have this executive director's retreat. Um, We're going to go to Vegas and that's where it's going to be. So I'm like, I'm in. And so I honestly, I cannot remember exactly what year it was. Um, I'll have to think way back. I know I gave Lori some of the early documents, but so the first year there was only 12 of us, um, uh, you know, and we were mostly from the East coast. There were some, I know Danny opened and was there from Phoenix, but anyhow, we had a great time and we, we did basically what we said we were going to do, which is just uh, 
spend a day solving problems or bringing up issues. And then we decided that this really was something that could work. So we said the next year, we're going to try and get 50 people. And uh, our job, each of us, was to invite four people, figuring if three said yes. Uh, so we basically had to call people and say, um, we're going to guarantee two things for you if you come to this conference. We're going to guarantee you that you're going to learn something that will make you be able to do your job better. And we're going to guarantee you that you're going to meet somebody that's going to become a new colleague for you, that's going to be beneficial to your work. Those are the only two things we can tell you. Um, and so we got 50 people, you know, um, I think part of it was that you couldn't come if you weren't invited. And so all, it made it very, uh, compelling for people. Um, but it was, it was nerve wracking because as you guys know, um, when you do something like this in a hotel, you have to lay out a chunk of change. Um, and being that, that it was in January, of course, our fear was, oh my God, most of the people we invited were on the East coast. What if there's a bad snowstorm? And, uh, so for the first two or three years, when we were just council um, of autism services, uh, we were not incorporated and we were riding on our own money at that point. We each had to commit to $10,000. Um, thankfully, it never it it never went bad. Uh, it kept growing. Um, Lanny, I don't were you in on the second year? Did you come to that first one we had when there was 50 people? I think it might have been the year after that. Uh, right. So I think my first year was 2011, maybe. Yeah, and it was, and it was right after Linda LeBlanc joined us as our executive clinical director at Trumpet, and um, I think that's you know the friends and the people that you keep wind up like opening doors for you. And I think that was, they, Linda, you, Linda knew all of you and knew Ray well. And that's how I first got invited at that stage. But yeah, I think it was 2011. Yeah. So 2009 was that group of 10. And then 2010 was the group of 50. And it was for one day. And we literally just had three round tables, one from nine to 1030. And uh, there was five tables and we just said, talk about staff recruitment and retention. Um, and then each table had to come up with the top five ideas, the top five challenges. And then we all met as a total group for 30 minutes and learned things. And then we did another topic from before lunch. And then we did another topic after lunch. And that was it. Uh, you know, we didn't do anything except let people talk to each other Um and everybody loved it. And the, the number one feedback we got was two days. This has to be two days. So, of course, again, that makes it a lot more expensive to commit to, but we agreed. Um, and so then the next year we had close to 100 people and we did it for two days and we were a little bit more organized. We still didn't have the ability to pay anybody to come speak. Um, so we relied a lot on just a, a lot of the small groups and um yeah, so that that's where it, you know, that's how the ball got started. You know, uh, we just when you're when you're running a company or you're running a business, you know, as much as you you're used to going to ABAI or to for me Autism New Jersey, those are the that's where I grew up. But it really even OBM talks while they were great, didn't help me in staff recruitment issues or in dealing with a difficult parent or you know risking dealing with some of the risks that we deal with. So. I just felt like I learned so much more literally sitting in a bar, picking Ray's brain or somebody else's brain. And um, so, yeah, that's it. That's the impetus behind CASP. Can I just tell you how much I love that CASP started as a combination speakeasy slash Ponzi scheme in like the greatest senses of both of those concepts. But I'm curious, like Lady and Joanne, like how have the nature of the topics that you all discussed how have those changed over the years? Well, I'm just going to say one thing, then I'm going to kick it over to Lanny because I've been doing the biggest change for me, right? Is that the first two, three, maybe even four years, 75 to 80% of the membership, and now we weren't really formally members, right? But the, so I would say 75 to 80% of the attendees ran schools and not for profits. And today that is dramatically flipped. 
right? So that to me changes a lot of the topic of conversation. But anyhow, Elaine, I'll kick it to you. I think it's evolved um, in a number of ways. One, the the diversity of topics has grown substantially. So, um, so those early days were a lot of one-on-one. How do you lead and respond to this kind of problem? And it was a lot of just you know best practice or information sharing as you know in discussion about how we individually dealt with stuff, right? Now, I think there's still that. We still have that opportunity to engage at that level, but it is also much more broadly what is happening in the field and what are the sort of environmental issues that we all have to respond to. And so the topics have expanded to you know, that, access to services or um, the you know disinformation about uh, ABA or the political environment or you know a lot of these other things. So it's it's a broader um, you know set of set of topics for the field. Uh, you know I think that's how it's extended and expanded. Yeah, I think one thing that the tone that we set from literally from that very first group meeting where we had fifty people, the tone there was. We share, you know, we, it, it, we, it, we asked, uh, for example, one group, uh, I think it was neck, uh, it might've been Vinny's group to bring, um, their risk management thing. And I said, but you're going to have to be willing to give some of it out because we just share that's we're here. There's too many kids with autism, not enough good providers. We're not competing with anything. And so that tone, what I love is that that still runs through CASP as we grew and grew and grew and grew. And yet, like, you know, anytime I, I, I there's a, a person coming to CASP this year who is a new member and he uh, has a new job as a CEO of a, a large group similar to mine, a nonprofit, but he's like in some rural part of Missouri. And I said to him, you need to get into CASP so that you can have colleagues because you really need colleagues. And so uh, I'm looking forward to how much I think he's going to get out of a weekend like CASP. Um, Joanne, I just want to agree or kind of, I guess, give perspective on, I don't think we were a member at this point, but I remember my first, it was CAS conference was in Las Vegas in 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. Somebody can fact check me, but it sounds, it was at the Flamingo Hotel. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. It might have been the first year we were actually CASP. It's right about the time that we converted. Um, and I think I think y'all announced it at that conference because for me, I was like, CASP, CASP, but I was digging through old CEUs and I have a CEU paper that has CAS at the front. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was so long ago. But it was in 2016. And I remember, um, number one, it was exclusive. And I think that was the MO behind a lot of people because you were waiting for that invitation. But then also, um, being a provider, there was this rumor of, you know, it's open conversation and it's collaboration and it's all of these things. And so I remember as a provider, definitely in a different place in my career than now, but coming up to the CAS conference at that point, we were asked to bring, or we had homework, you know, bring this policy to the round table, bring that policy and this, that, and the other. And it was weird. It was so weird for us back then to stretch that muscle of collaboration. And I agree with you, Joanne, your friend, um, I mean, we need friends. And I, I've talked to two cast members today and um, in Texas, it's it's 1.40 p.m. So um, it was weird. And I think that CASP and CASP started that. That was something completely unknown in the field. It was um, very sectioned off and very hush-hush. And um, I remember in 2016 being like, oh my gosh, this is so weird and so great. Um, you know, like I got to go sit at a table with Ron Leaf and talk clinical things. Like who gets to do that? Um, and it was just, I mean, so cool. And then obviously we became cast members and the rest is history. But um, I am curious 
for both of you guys, I know you started at different points. Did you have a feeling that it was going to turn into what it has? Did you, I, I don't know if you um, dream big like that, but I mean, CASP is just, I mean, it's crazy what it is now. Did you guys have a feeling that that's where it was headed? I did not. Um, I, I, we, we had had this thing where we were never going to be bigger than a hundred. That was, um, and it would drive people crazy because we're like, no, we can't be bigger than a hundred. But then people were like, well, how are you going to be sustainable? And we're like, we don't care. We're not going to be bigger than a hundred. Um, because the whole idea that, and it was scary. It, it, it was, I, we, I was worried that we would lose the crux of it. I was worried we were just going to become another ABAI where, you know, we had all these presentations and people had to sit through them. And before you knew it, it that was my fear. Um, that has not happened by the way. In fact, it's, they, there's, there's been really creative ways to keep the small feel of it. Um, and so I, I'm really happy about that. I mean, I'm, I will tell you that I am so thrilled at where we are today. Um, so anyhow. So I appreciate and appreciated at the time exactly what you were describing, Joanne, that it was a small enough group of people that you could maintain personal interaction and, a, and, and have meaningful time to engage with people at a, you know authentic, deep level. And at the same time, the more I got involved, uh, the more it, it felt like we needed, the field needed, a an organization to represent and to facilitate organizations in the field. Um, there were others that were supporting the behavior analysts themselves um, or the practice of behavior analysis, but there was no organization that was facilitating how organizations should behave and be structured and interact with each other and those kinds of things. And that was the evolution of CAS to CASP was formally sort of laying that out. And the hope was that we would provide value in a way that it would grow. Um, and I think that that has occurred and, um, and continues to, you know, kicked into high gear during COVID and those kinds of things was a very, very strong example of um, the value that a trade association like CASP can provide to its members in supports of infrastructure and information sharing and to, but maintaining the original culture of collaboration um, that I think Ray and uh, Joanne and Danny you know, set, set up from the beginning. So um, I think it was a hope and it's, you know, still going, still writing the future is, is still continuing. You know, just to kind of throw a little bit more um, history into the context of, of CAS slash CASP. Um, when we decided to incorporate, we obviously needed to then hire an executive director. That was, now we were really taking risks, right? Because now we were going to be paying somebody's salary. Um, and we had a couple of great applicants. And uh, so Emily, um, Emily Callahan, who ultimately was our first executive director, she was Ray Romanchik's research assistant um, and, and grad student. So she had come from the very beginning to, to even to that first meeting of 12 people. She basically was like uh, the, the, the organizer. And, and so when she ended up getting the job, um, you know, a, a lot, you know, as we all know, Sadly, uh, when her son got sick and she had to give up the job, um, but she really got the ball rolling and she took a big risk, you know, no different of a big risk than Lori took, which is I'm basically taking a job where I'm not 100 percent sure you're going to have enough money to pay me the following year. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was unfortunate that 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 happened. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, life goes on and thankfully all is good with uh, with her son and then on board came Lori. And, uh, you know, that was an interesting meeting where we were at a board meeting trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, we didn't have a ton of money and somebody said, well, we've got this option. Let's, let's go after this person. And I'm like, we, we can't afford this person. Um, 
and and that wasn't you know it was just because we just didn't have a lot of money to ensure that we could do it for a couple of years. So again, when 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 we made uh, when we interviewed Lori and made her the offer, I was like, would I take this job if I wasn't a hundred percent? Because there was no guarantee. You know, the only source of income we had was our conference. And of course, Lanny was was our money guy way back then. So Lanny, I don't know what what you thought about how risky all that time was for us back then. Well, yeah, when we when we formed CASP, I think if I remember right, there were 14 organizations that stepped up with a sort of one-time, um, you know, donation to the founding of the organization, which was basically just prepaying our membership dues. Right. And that established at least enough of a foundation that we could invest in, you know, a staff. But you're right, Joanne, it was for one year. Um, and we we said we have cash to operate for one year. And we set out um, in a very entrepreneurial way. We put a forecast together of what we thought membership adoption would be and what we thought the profile of members would be. So of the small organizations up to the larger organizations and by you know luck or smarts i'm not sure which it, the first forecast was almost dead on <laughs> it was it was pretty amazing that the people that we thought would likely dip into their pockets and make that investment for that first membership um you know round did and and that is what set it onto its path. But every year we've been more ambitious than the prior year <laughs> with respect to the breadth of the services that we're developing and the programs that we're trying to initiate. And so every year is almost a repeat of the prior conversation of, well, we can do this for one year, but if things don't continue to grow, we're gonna have hard choices to make. And it's just been through, I think, the engagement of the membership through the uh, extraordinary effort of the now you know staff and um, and a lot of volunteer support the board members especially contribute a lot of time to um, to try to continue to build this community and build the services and all of that has been you know combined to uh, to create now more sustainability and I think more more substance but there's you know there's more to come I think you know, each year we have new ideas and we have to make choices, but each year we've continued to grow in a way that has continued to support those, um, those efforts and ideas. Thanks, Joanne and Lainey. Um, so I, I'm so excited to hear this story and I'm glad that the rest of the membership can hear this of just a, a cool, a need. And then Joanne and your creative ideas coming up with one. And I, if you've been around Joanne, there's fun, there's always fun involved. And I just love how that threads through the fabric of CASP. For me, as an executive, it can be so stressful and we all know how lonely it can get at the top. Just having a group of people that I can one call and say, holy crap, this is happening. Like, have you been through it? And almost always have somebody who has had that experience or what are you thinking about this? How are you thinking about solving this problem? And hearing so many diff different, very varied ideas, not just from clinicians, but from people from other industries who have come into our field, like Natesh from, from the banking world and Jonathan, I know you came from another world, just being able to get all that diverse, varied um, experiences. I don't know where else I could have gotten access to that. And like um, Hallie was saying earlier, getting to be in front of some of the best of the best of our field and and just experiencing that collaboration in, in real time is such a gift and an awesome feeling. And I just want to thank um, all of you for it. Um, I also know that being as being part of the board, every one of you work your butts off constantly all the time to keep things going. Um, so for those who don't know, um, being on the board is still... Um, it's still a lot of work. Joanne still puts in hours and hours and hours. I know Lainey does looking at numbers all the time. So um, there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining that vision. Um, so my question to both of you is how did 
at what point did you feel like that vision became tangible? Like, at what point do you feel like, okay, we are, we are doing this? And what do you foresee, um, where do you foresee CAS filling in some of the gaps in the field moving forward? For me, honestly, I felt like it was going to, once we got past year one, and I mean year one with an with a actual employee, and we managed to get to year two, I felt pretty confident we were going to get to year 10, 20, 30. I didn't anticipate we would get to where we are today as fast as we did, you know, and, and, you know, we've got um, an incredible team, you know, of, of people who both, both the board, when I look at the talent and the, you know, that, that is on this board. And then I look at our, our team of staff, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see where we're going to go. And, you know, to me, it's almost like, and I had no vision of this, this because I didn't have a vision that ABA was going to become some sort of pseudoscience in the world of, you know, I didn't see the, I'm going to attack ABA coming. I sort of did, but I didn't see it where we are right now. And I feel like CASP is the one organization that can actually do something about this. You know, we can... Um, and we are doing something about it, right? We as a, as a provider community and as a board and as an organization, by creating the standards, by having the organizational um, standards and uh, the, all of the stuff that CASP is doing. So I see that this is just going to continue to grow, right, in, the, in this area of, and I see it every, every couple of days when Lori's like, and we have a new member, and we have a new member. And we're starting to represent so many more parts of the country now as well. Well, this diversity and base um, that you're describing, uh, both in types of companies and geography, breadth of services, you know, population served, funding sources, all of those things have really expanded pretty dramatically, you know, as the field has grown in those same directions over these several years. The vision or the impetus, I think, from my perspective of formally organizing, I talked a little bit before about before. But the backdrop of that was uh, foreseeing a little bit of the need to uh, establish the standards that Joanne talked about, and especially an accreditation program. And so launching of ACQ last year, I think it was a very, very important milestone in the, for the field and for CASP specifically. And so I think as we look forward to you know, what the future holds, um, there's continued, continued development and expansion of the core things around professional development and learning and collaboration and all those things. But I do think um, the vision is still a little unrealized of the needs for organizational um, accountability. You know, it's funny because um, I would have to say, Lana, you were the real driver of that a few years back before and, and I thought in my head yeah that's a really great idea but that's 10 years down the road like that's how I was thinking because it's it's huge you know what has to take place to um and it and it was costly and it was and here we are you know um and I 100% agree if we don't have accreditation with clear cut benchmarks to um you know we want to eventually uh, and we have to, as a field, um, really put ABA back into a uh, a positive light. You know, I, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We got a, here at Eden 2, we take speech interns from different universities. And one of my speech coordinators sent a letter to her alma mater, which I won't even mention the name, even though I feel like I should, um, saying, you know, we're back now in person. We're ready for speech interns because uh, they used to send them to us. And she received a letter saying, we embrace here at blah, blah, blah college, we embrace a neurodiverse model of, of, um, of autism. We embrace neurodiversity. And so therefore we no longer support ABA. We think it's bad. We think it's this. We, this is a college. This is a university that has a, a position that is not allowing their graduate students to access education in an area that has more evidence than anything else because of some philosophical 
fake news that's going on out there. So, but if we just say we're going to go out and we're going to push ABA and we're going to say how good it is and how good it is, the problem is we all know that that's not true. We all know that there are pockets and and areas and places and providers that are not good and they're doing it under the name of ABA. So how does the consumer know the difference between good ABA and this isn't what we support? This is not ABA. So that's where, that's the only way we're going to save our field is to really create these standards, hold organizations and providers to them and say, nope, it, yeah, I get it. You're, you, that's bad. But look, they're they're not going to pass our accreditation. So, you know, to me, I think it's the it is both critical for the field, and obviously, I think CASP is the right organization to do it. So, I want to double click on this. This feels like a really important idea. That is that CASP, as a trade association, can level up quality across our entire field. And I want to give a stat. I think CASP has something like three to four hundred members. Right, so we've seen this explosion. But if we look at analogs in other parts of healthcare, I think it's the National Association for Home Care and Hospice represents something like thirty-three thousand. That's like a couple decimal points difference, right? Now they've been around for forty years, and home health um, and hospice have, have been around for generations. But I'm curious, Lanny and Joanne, like, what is the field going to look like in five to ten years as CASP as a the trade association for ABA organizations? continues to focus on things like ACQ, like leveling up quality, like advocacy work, what are your efforts going to look like? Well, I mean, I, in my head, I see us, you know, one of the things we always talked about back in the early days was if if we were ever going to actually grow and become incorporated, I thought our home base, I thought our office uh, should be in DC because I always felt like eventually we need to be that organization that when the Hill has a question about autism, they call CASP. They don't call ASAN or they call uh, uh, an organization. So to your point, Jonathan, we, as much as I hate to admit it, we need to grow and grow and grow and grow because, you know, we do need to be that go-to organization uh, because unfortunately, you know, I really worry about what lawmakers in D.C., are hearing. And, and, and Lori and, and her team talk about this all the time. And it's so brilliant when she says it, you know, there are these conferences or meetings and I, I'm, I'm going to do it poorly justice, but uh, where all of these major organizations of uh, trade associations go to like, it's a, I don't know if it's a conference or a meeting. So the American speech and hearing association has representation there and APA and right. But and all the lawmakers are there so they can start to hear about things. But ABA is never there, right? There's no, now we are, but there wasn't. We were not representing ourselves as a, as a profession. We were, um, we were not part of, you know, the, and we're not there yet, but that's one of our, at least for me, that's one of our big goals is to have us be that go-to so that when they're going to make a decision um, in, 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 terms of legislature or funding that we get spoken to. You know, if you remember, uh, Lanny, I think think you were on the board. Um, This really came to an ugly head for us when uh, there was a statement that was being written on the use of restraint. And they went to, the, the legislators went to Autism Speaks to get their information. And while I have nothing bad to say about Autism Speaks, they don't represent providers. They don't know what we're doing day in and day out, right? And so I thought, wow, it should have been us that they came to. We, you know, but we just aren't known yet. Yeah, and I think that what you're describing is that it's um, a comprehensive, uh, evidence-based, scientifically derived, but um, voice of uh, trust, right? And, you know, I think that that is, especially on the legislative side, Joanne, you know, because there's so much risk with bad legislation or something that is misinformed becoming codified in a, you know, in a law or regulation, um, 
you know, those are the, the risk factors that we face. But at the same time, we play the balancing effect of holding organizations, you know, to a standard, to a high standard and accountable. So the more that we do that with our own membership, the more um, our voice uh, has weight and is trusted outside of the the membership, right? Yep. Do you guys see, I guess, in the future in terms of ACQ accreditation, everything like that, um, is there requirements that you guys see in the future? Or, you know, right now, accreditation, no matter which way you go, is pretty optional. But is there a world in which it's required so that providers are, you know, whenever you're thinking about ABA, you're knowing pretty closely what you're getting? Because I agree with what Joanne said. I think there's a lot of hesitancy on the provider end whenever we're talking about, you know, standing up for ABA and everything like that. Because we do know that we hear the horror stories and we hear the conversations and we're not so confident we're going through ACQ accreditation and it's um, very in-depth and there's a lot of rigor with it. And so I'm very appreciative of that. But then I, you know, think about it's, it's not a requirement. We're doing it because we want to be held to, we want to be held accountable by ACQ. But um, yeah, what does the future look like there? Or I guess goals or hopes or dreams, whatever you think. Well, I think that right now the the incentive uh, to be accredited is a lot of what you just described. It is because you want to learn and you want to have have an external party, you know, evaluate your practices and give you feedback, and you want to get you know better. I think that the um, the value of accreditation has to continue to evolve, right? And so, the, as accreditation becomes more widely um, adopted, I think that I would love to see it be a standard by which uh, payers evaluate the the people that are in their networks. Um, it it would be great if families and consumers of our services could rely on an accreditation to understand you know what who is practicing at the sort of best standards and who might not be. Today, the challenge is um, information sources are, you know, not as trustworthy, but, you know, you know if you like your provider or if they're professional, but you don't really know if you're getting great intervention as a family or as an employer, right? You think about the, the recruiting and hiring world. I would love to see it be a, a standard by which people would evaluate places that they would want to work, right? And I, whether all of those things become, I think, forces uh, that that create incentive and adoption and all of those things. So I don't, I don't think it would be effective to like legislate it or mandate accreditation. I think it's got to be. The all of those forces working together to provide value and incentive to the accreditation, and so then eventually it, it does become the gold standard. Um, you know, all factors in, included together. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think at, at some point, certainly, if I was a payer and I knew that there was this accreditation out there that you know was basically saying, if you, if you are accredited by this group, they're basically saying, we have done your homework for you. And we have ensured that they are um, providing quality programs and et cetera. So to me, I, I think at some point, once it's big enough and out there, it will become a, a payer preference. Um, and then hopefully a family preference. You know, it's complicated for me because we don't provide any insurance-based um, private healthcare services. Um, and so that's, that's why I, you know, I, I can't see us at the moment uh, going. And so I want to make sure we also, I mean, clearly right now, the number one priority is accreditation for healthcare, private healthcare insurance, because that's where we run the biggest risk, if you want my humble opinion, because that's where the largest growth is. 
and the least amount of oversight. So like I'm all in, I think this is exactly what we need to do. Um, and I'm hoping it grows quickly and um, it does go in the direction we want. But at some point we have to do the same thing for schools and educational settings because families have no idea, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, New York City public schools, and I don't mind saying this in a public podcast, claims that they're doing ABA in their autism classrooms, and that is just not happening. None of us would agree that what they're doing is ABA, and yet that's what um, families are seeing, and you can understand why then. So there have to be these, hopefully, ways in which we can uh, do the same thing for schools. Um, I tend to think people throw ABA around like Montessori. So I just found out recently because my kids um, attend Montessori school that not all Montessori schools are Montessori, that anybody can open a school and, and slap their name on there and they don't have to follow the principles. They don't even have to hire what they call guides. Um, and I feel like ABA has grown the same reputation. Um, anybody can say they're an ABA expert or they're doing ABA. And like you said, Joanne, there's no way to to measure the science against it. Um, and it's such a shame that the, the science is taking a hit because of practice, because the science actually does work. So I'm super thrilled about the work we are doing at ACQ. And um, and like you said, hopefully it it rises everybody above. Before I pitch my next question, I just want to give a shout out to all the CASP founders who uh, who couldn't make it today. Dr. Danny Oppenden of SARC, Dr. Jane Howard of Therapeutic Pathways, Dr. Stephen Anderson of the Summit Center, uh, Rita Gardner of Melmark, Steve Muller of Balance Autism. So all the OGs that are out there. Uh, but I want to come back to a really topical conversation. We all just saw that the CDC came out with one in 36 kiddos have autism. And in some ways, and I know there's been an explosion of ABA providers in the last decade plus, but it just feels like we're in this hamster wheel. And as a field, we cannot keep up with the need for services. How can CASP help address this increasing supply demand imbalance? Uh, that is a really good question. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think the only thing we can do is continue to uh, hopefully create these um, supports that providers need in order to become a quality program and then encourage staff to go there for better training. Eventually, you know, they'll go off and start their own because they've had five, six, seven, eight years of, of good training. Best teachers right now in the New York City Department of Education worked for me for five years, right? So, uh, and then they went off and, and, are getting paid a lot more than I pay them. Um, but that's a really, really challenging question, I think. And I, I don't really know the answer to that, but that is something that we should be thinking about and kicking around at some point. Lanny, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think the original vision was uh, collaboration so that on a personal level, you were wanting to explore topics and get better as a leader, right? And getting better as a leader of an organization uh, has the effect of making you know your practice better, your organization better, making you a better employer, and all of those kinds of things. As we've created structure around that vision and culture of collaboration and increasing the capability of leadership, it's more formalized programs around you know leadership development and the the tracks that we have at the conference, um, the SIGs, uh, all of those things that are now sort of structural elements of helping organizations to be more effective and efficient. And those dynamics, I think, build capacity um, to try to keep up with the factors in the, in the field and the, the marketplace that you're describing. And demand continues to exceed supply. Um, but as a very specific example, there's now a SIG that is working explicitly on uh, the creating uh, longevity in ABA as a career for behavior technicians. And that 
is the type that's a specific example of how the vision of CASP has evolved into, you know, support and structures that evolve into the capacity to focus on specific topics that reinforce better services, more complete access to services, you know, more uh, longevity, increased quality, like all of those things are, are reinforcing each other. And you see it topics like that, that's a brand new topic that just got launched um, to try to address what you're describing. And the, and the Leadership Academy that is going to come back online. So we had we had one and then, of course, COVID hit. Um, and so we kind of haven't didn't didn't really have the bandwidth to get it back up and running, especially because of all the different timing changes. You know, the, the, the first Leadership Academy and the only one we've had uh, was in May. And now we've got the CASP conference sort of so we had to kind of recalibrate, but that is definitely something that I think will also help with capacity building because, you know, it's funny because our accountant uh, works for, a, he's a partner in a major accounting firm here in Manhattan, and he's just 65 years old and he's retiring. And I was taking a train with him and I said, wow, you're retiring. You, you seem like, and he goes, I have to, we're required. And I'm like, why? Like, do they think you've lost your cognitive capacity? He said, no. He goes, there's only so many partners that a major accounting firm can have. And if we don't make room for some of these younger kids, they're going to leave. And so we just basically create space for, we don't have that issue in the ABA world, right? So if somebody's uh, running a company and we can get somebody trained up to either be their successor but if that's going to be too long, go out and start another company, right? But be a quality company right from the get-go. Um, I think that was the that was the other really important thing for me with CASP was I was watching these 25-year-old kids when, when autism insurance just first started cracking through some states and they were starting these businesses. Um, and I was appalled at at CASP conferences about how little they knew how to run a business. And, uh, you know, somebody recently said to me, um, what's he's a, he, his background was all in healthcare. So now he runs a, um, an ABA program. And he said, the biggest problem I see is that behavior analysts are running healthcare companies and know nothing about healthcare. And so they, you know, so that's really where, where I think we can help with capacity building is by, getting people into leadership positions that know all the pieces, not just the how to prompt and shape and differentially reinforce. Well said, Joanne. Um, while we're on the topic of risks to the field, um, one that I know, Joanne, you bring up often and try to keep in the front of, um, of leadership is the threats to ABA from um, other organizations who call ABA and non-science, which is beyond me, um, knowing that the threat to the workforce exists and also the acceptance of ABA has become a real threat. Where do you feel like, what other threats do you see in the field? And where do you feel like CASP as an organization is not realizing um, potentials in certain spaces? due to capacity or whatever it is, but where, where do you think we can step up next? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think that uh, clearly we have to continue to push out the positives, right? We have to be the, the group that pushes out because we, we are in a digital world, right? And the really sad part is that whether it's politics or whether it's ABA or whether it's cooking, it's really hard for people to know the difference between fact and fiction. And so we have to just keep putting out there all the positive information. <clears throat> I, I get that, you know, BCDAs have to deal with their, I can't uh, do testimonials, et cetera, but, but CASP can, can do that, right? We can be the ones to get um, people together to talk about, you know, how much their lives have been changed. I have a young man that works for me, and uh, I, I asked him if he would, uh, so Danny, I have to throw kudos to Danny because he's the, the brainchild behind this, but he has a sort of an advisory group now of autistic adults that he meets with quarterly to make sure that we're, you know, uh, providing services in a way that is 
respectful of autism, but understanding their perspectives, knowing, by the way, that one person with autism is just that, right? One person with autism. So I met with him and he, I've known him since he's three years old. And uh, I said, just, you know, we've never talked about this because he works for me. He doesn't, he's not working for me as an autistic person. He's working for me as an employee. And I said, just out of curiosity, what's your perspective and take on ABA? Um, he, he doesn't, he works in, in a non-clinical department in my agency. And he goes, Joanne, I wouldn't be working if I didn't have ABA. And he goes, it, it, it's what saved my life. And I said, what's your thought about the puzzle piece? Because that seems to be a real. And he goes, what? Because people think that uh, it's, it's insulting that we're a puzzle. He goes, I'm still a puzzle to myself half the time. Um, and I just like that perspective, you know, and I think those are the kinds of conversations that we need to put out there more. You know, I loved when Judith and her daughter uh, did something. I think we need to do more of that. I think we need to have people who really benefited from ABA um, talk about it. Lainey, do you have anything to add? Not really. I mean, I think that the 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 challenge with the field um, has been supply-demand. The challenge then is, um, you know, in a growth environment, there's going to be, you know, some, it's not a straight line, you know, positive, right? There's, there's ups and downs and hopefully it's all, you know, continuing to move in the right direction. And, but when things go poorly or there's front page news, everybody wants to find, you know, some thing to blame or some person to blame. And, and I think that uh, the role of an, an organization like CASP is to enable people to put those things into perspective and to, you know, have more uh, measured and systematic and sort of data-driven approaches to the response to things versus emotional approaches to response to things. And so I think that that continues to be the role that, that, um, that CASP can and has to play on a bigger and bigger scale on a, at a more institutional level in a certain sense. So I think that that's all sort of wrapped in, wrapped up in what we've been talking about. I went to an interesting presentation about a decade ago on evidence-based practice in education. And it, it talked about the beginnings of evidence-based practice, which obviously came out of medicine uh, because people were dying of, of ridiculously non-life-threatening things because people were not, there was no real science behind what was happening in medicine. So once they started implementing, you know, this evidence-based practice model, you can see the graphs of the the reduction in deaths for, you know, Lanny, you always say, what's the aspirin? What's, what's our aspirin, mm-hmm. right? Um, because, right. So what the way you measure the quality of whether or not you're, um, well, you say it, something to do well, with. So when we first started talking about outcomes, it was incredibly hard to get people to agree on what should be measured or, um, you know, what are the data inputs? What what assessments should we be using? You know, all of these different things. And so the example just the, that I tried to use to focus people in those early conversations is in, in HEDIS measures, which is, you know, sort of well-worn um, structure in healthcare, in core healthcare. They're, they boil down the quality measures to very, very specific process, structure, and then outcome measures. Right? So you got to understand what are the best inputs to uh, to measure that would likely produce the best effect. You're not always going to get the best outcome, but do the things that would potentially give you the best outcome. And the one really simple example is in stroke care. There's a measure for hospitals and emergency rooms for patients that are presenting with stroke symptoms, the amount of time between the time they present with a stroke symptom and when an aspirin is prescribed. and so I, whenever we were having, getting sort of wrapped around the axle around the complexity of an issue, the, I would use that phrase like, well, what's our aspirin? What's like, what's the one thing everybody can agree on? And let's start there. We can get more complex, but let's find, let's find the aspirin and then we can work outward from there. So that was what that. Really yes. Yeah. Well, so my, my point is I think about that a lot and this, at this presentation I went to, they, they, Obviously, they show these graphs about the you know declining in deaths due to stupidity in medicine. Then they talked about education, and so education started adopting an evidence-based uh, practice model, 
and they their 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 measures were third grade reading scores and eighth grade reading scores. And what they found was uh, there was a slight slight increase in in the ability in the reading scores once they implemented this required evidence based practice. But then they over put a line, which was how much money they've poured into education. So basically, they were doing nothing. That that slight, you know. And the reason is because we don't use evidence based practice in education. If we did, we would be using a lot more ABA based reading programs, for example. Right? It's just crazy. And so somehow we've got to get that. And we're dealing with this now at a time when science is not seen as a good thing for, by many people. So we've got a lot, uh, it's like a perfect storm in, in some ways, but I, I feel like we're, we're on the right track at least. So normally we'll do rapid fire for our guests, but um, Jonathan and I had the idea of doing rapid fire board edition. So you can call out all of your friends. (laughs) Um, Does that sound good? I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) Sounds great. Lainey, he is loving this. Like, you should see the smirk on his face. He is ready to call Danny out. I know that. (laughs) Okay, so first question. Now you have these questions too. So if you want to, we can just rotate amongst us. Um, but so we'll keep it light to begin with. We won't call anybody out too terribly. Um, but what has been, and I'm assuming maybe you guys have different ideas of this, but what has been, uh, your most funnest moment on the board or your most enjoyable moment while serving on the cast board? Well, I I can't say it's necessarily cast board, but hands down, Without question, my funnest moment at CASP, with or without the board, was when Ohio State played Oregon in the national title game in Vegas, and it was that Monday night of CASP, and I sent out an email to the board and to, I don't even know who, to random members, uh, to 50 people saying, I'm going to reserve 40 seats at this bar. So whoever wants in has to let me know. It's $35 minimum. That's all you got to come up with. And honestly, within four days, I had all 40 spots taken. And who knew when I got there that it was a Buckeye bar. So uh, it was so much fun. Uh, that was the I best. I was going to say the exact same story, by the way, and I'm not joking. Um, and it was the first time that I learned the OH. I O <laughs> cheer, uh, and the entire bar was going crazy. And at the time, my partner Chris Miller, who's from Cleveland, Ohio, a big Ohio State fan, uh, which I also didn't know, um, was was with me at that at that event. And it wound up because Ohio State was so good for a few years in a row. And it always, the cast conference always happened right around the national championship game. It it repeated itself a couple times where we had these, had these big uh, fun get togethers over college football at the conference. It It was so great. And honestly, to me, like Hallie, when you said I got to sit next to Ron Leaf and, you know, I, I was always one of these stalkers when I was in college. Like I stalked my textbook, professors that wrote this textbook. I wanted to, uh, Willard Zemlin wrote my anatomy and physiology book and I met him in a bar and it was always in a bar that I met all these people. And to me, I felt like my relationships grew so much just in that game that night. I, I brought two bags full of Ohio State clothing. <laughs> so I dressed half the bar. And of course, Ron Leaf and his crew, they were all Oregon fans. So it was fun. It was one of the best nights. Joanne, isn't there always a bar story involved with you? There's always a drink story involved with me, but I feel like there's a bar and there's always a bar involved. <laughs> Love it. All right. So who on the board is most likely to adjourn a board meeting to get to lunch? Hmm. Brian. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That actually probably is the answer. I would say Brian, yeah. 
he is and i am so grateful for it because we can keep going he's like stapler for the time love it which was much needed we you know there were there were definitely board meetings in the early days where we would spend far too much time on something that was less important and then at the end of the meeting we're trying to be on something that was super important in the last 10 minutes um so i highly value <laughs> brian's um execution skills the other, uh, execution. <laughs> the other funny thing that I uh, that I has to be said is um, that two board members, right? Big Steve and Little Steve. I mean, how funny is it that Little Steve is six foot four? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who is the funniest board member? And I'm starting a war with this one. Probably Joanne. <laughs> I'm <just> curious. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, you know, it depends on the week. I need to see the list. I think it's between, I think Rita is hilarious. <laughs> so, so I think it's between you, Joanne, Rita, and Brian is, is up there. Brian is pretty funny. He's, he's very dry. Well, I'll let you pick, Lenny. <laughs> Who do you think is the funniest? Uh, I, I, well, I agree. You know, the Rita and Brian's are are the dry humor, um, and you know, most of the time they're intending a joke. Sometimes not, but it's funny. Uh, but the most fun is Joanne. I second that one. Who and I came up with this one because I'm genuinely curious. Who is the most outwardly passionate? We know you're all passionate about what you do, but who's most outwardly? I need a, I need a roster of the board in front of me so I can sort of rank them. Uh, I'm trying to trying to think about it. It's going to depend on 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 the issues. Jane is it was it was incredibly outwardly passionate about the organizational standards. So when we were when that was the focus, she was the you know driver of that. I think with credentialing, I think I would have said it was Lanny. You know. Um, I, I think uh, it really, there's so much passion on this board. Yeah, people care deeply. And there's so much passion married with just uh, intelligence and expertise that, um, so like when I just, you just showed me the roster, I think, think of Eric Larson and the depth of information that he brings to the table on uh, public policy issues or, you know, structural issues and services and things like that. I mean, his passion comes through in this sort of somewhat reserved and quiet way, but whenever he is engaged or involved in something, it's with total competence and professionalism and capability that is what makes, you know, makes him so powerful. Um, and I think each one, you know, you could probably go through each member of the board and come up with the ways that they have really significant impact um across issues no i put you up there too i think you have you bring amazing energy and passion to uh well, the board at a at i was a gonna really, say she's really positive way she's clearly the nicest board member i mean there isn't a thing that doesn't happen where na doesn't type in the chat well done so and so she you are a walking reinforcer na thanks i try to give the reinforcement that i get so it speaks a lot of other people around me, but thanks. Which board member is most likely to challenge the board's preconceived notions on something? Joanne gives us a lot of reminders about what the real world anti-ABA stuff is out there. So I always listen to, she has a good pulse on that. So I always listen to that. I, I would say Rita too, though. Rita's pretty, you know, first of all, Rita is no nonsense. <laughs> like when, you know, when something needs to get done uh, or if she doesn't agree with something, it's just, here it is. I don't have time, you know, to, to make you feel good about the fact that I don't agree with you. Um, not that she ever makes anybody feel bad because she doesn't. It's always spot on. But, um, and Eric with his really, really strong background in, in ABA, obviously. Go ahead, Lenny. I'd also put Danny up there. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think um, he is a very systematically thoughtful person. And so he 
when conversations are moving quickly, he he won't he won't let something just pass if he has a question about it or a specific you know point that he wants to understand better. And I think that that's a strong attribute to the board too. Yeah, great. Yeah. I think of Danny as a gatekeeper. I don't know if I have that image of him because he's so pleasant and kind and nice, but um, he's always asking the tough questions. And he, like Lenny said, he will not let anything pass him until he can check off all the boxes. So I, I do appreciate that about him. Well, that's all we had brainstormed um, for rapid fire. Um, Thank you guys so much for taking the time. I know we had some technical difficulties at the beginning, but this was such a great one to hear and we'll have to do maybe a part two with other founders at another time. Um, but I don't know. It was really great. Yeah. And shout out to Danny for trying in a green room and having a good look at himself. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to, uh, we'll, Look out for part two coming soon, and we'll hopefully do that one in person. So looking for some more lively action there. Um, thanks, Joanne and Lenny, for your expertise, your passion, your time, your kindness. Um, you are literally, I feel like I repeat this a lot, but I've not met more kind and compassionate humans in my life, and I appreciate every one of you.